This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. A small Bay Area town made national headlines recently thanks to a story in the New York Times magazine. You might have read it or seen chatter about it on social media. It was titled, The Instagram Account That Shattered a California High School. The story was a deep dive into a 2017 incident that not only shattered a high school, but rocked an entire town. Albany for all. This rally on Sunday was just a part of the healing process after a group of teen boys posted racially offensive photos of their classmates on Instagram that targets African-American girls, some posts with nooses and KKK images. The social media account was created by a Korean-American teenage boy at Albany High School. His posts targeted Black classmates and others with shocking images and videos, memes that compared Black students to gorillas, joked about slavery and lynchings, and mocked Black girls' hair. I was standing next to my coach, who is also African-American, and we both had nooses around our neck, and that was the joke. I just felt, I felt really disgusted. The story intrigued Oakland-based writer Dashka Slater. She spent years following the immediate and long-term fallout that happened in Albany, a small town that's tucked between Berkeley and El Cerrito. Well, Albany is a fascinating place because it is a small town, but it's also smack in the middle of the metropolitan Bay Area. Yet it was like a perfect kind of pressure cooker for looking at an incident of racist harm It's a town that, at least from the outside, looks like a liberal place where its high schoolers shouldn't be accused of racism. The community became fiercely divided over how best to hold the Instagram account's creator and followers responsible. And the whole incident exposed a very raw nerve. It was kind of an assault to the community's own sense of safety and, dare I say, superiority in feeling like, you know, we're not like the rest of the country. We are this small progressive town where everybody knows each other and everybody has good values. I'm familiar with this idealized perception of Albany. I spent all my awkward teenage years there, attending both the middle school and high school. As a Chinese-American student, I was not a minority at the school. The main student populations were, and still are, white and Asian. But I was aware that Albany was not this progressive utopia for students of all races, mainly because my best friend Candice was Black. Candice and I became friends in the sixth grade. We were both tardy on the first day of middle school. Our out-of-district parents were late to drop us off, and we bonded over that. 
Over the years, we also bonded over other things, including music and our shared worldviews. We balanced each other. She was the confident extrovert. I was the reserved introvert. For the most part, people didn't frown upon our racial differences, but our friendship did raise some eyebrows. We were an unusual pair because at Albany High, social spaces were mostly segregated by race. I wanted to understand what it was like to be a Black student at the school, and if an incident of explosive racism could have happened decades ago when we were in high school. So I hopped on a Zoom with Candice. Candice. You get to see me as a podcast host. Oh my gosh. Like, I've been watching you from afar and now I'm a part of it. Now you're a part of it. Now you're on the show. And the Fifth Emission listeners get to... Candace had read the New York Times Magazine story with much interest like I did. And I asked her what her first reaction was. I felt for the Black girl in the story. I felt for her. I sympathized, empathized. I could have been her. So that was my initial reaction. Secondly, I was not surprised. I've already, I have a, Jesus, how old is my kid? (laughs) I have an eight-year-old son and a nine-year-old daughter. And they've already experienced real-world things at school like this. For example, my son, he's gotten punched in the face and was told that someone was going to kill him. My daughter has already gotten the fingers, ran through her hair, the touching without permission. And I've experienced that in Albany, too. Because the creator of the Instagram account was an Asian-American student, I was curious to hear what Candace thought of that, too. I do think in Albany, for non-white kids, there is an undeniable pressure to fit in with the white mainstream. Just outside looking in, Asian kids in Albany when we grew up, lean towards fitting in with white culture. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it was accepted. It was was accepted. That we're going to have the the most opportunity. That's we're going to have the least trouble. Today on Fifth Emission, a look into what went down at Albany High, my alma mater. Was the Instagram account a product of growing up in the era of social media or the racist undertones of so-called liberal Albany? Perhaps it was a combination of both of those or something else altogether? Those are the types of questions that Dashka Slater spent years trying to answer, and she was particularly focused on this. Trying to further explore this question of what true accountability means and how we should respond when a young person does something that is so shocking and appalling and yet is still a young person who I believe has the potential for growth and transformation. The New York Times Magazine story was an adapted excerpt of a young adult book that Dashka Slater just published. It's called Accountable, the true story of a racist social media account and the teenagers whose lives it changed. I started my conversation with Dashka discussing how her reporting poked holes in this idealized image of Albany, the town I grew up in. She shared that that wasn't her main objective. It's not an Albany problem. It's an American problem. Mm -hmm. And I get Google alerts every time an incident like this happens somewhere in the country. And I get a Google alert every day where there is racist graffiti or a racist incident or quite commonly, as in this story, a racist social media account at a school. And this is really an American story Mm -hmm. of uh, conflict within the community, 
rising up out of our unresolved and still very current issues around race. And, you know, we're, we're just not good mm-hmm. at figuring out how to resolve those. Right. So this Albany High Instagram incident started unraveling in March 2017. And some of us might have a hard time remembering our pre-pandemic years. So take us back to 2017, if you don't mind. Trump had just taken office months earlier. But what was the social backdrop back then, maybe especially for high school kids? Well, you know, these were high school kids who had grown up under Obama. They had really never had another president in their living memory. Mm -hmm. And so Trump, I think for all of us in deep blue Bay Area, was a pretty shocking surprise. We did not think it could happen. And that was very true in Albany. And so there was, I think, an undercurrent of alarm. The high school had actually had a walkout after Trump was elected. I was told the first time that the students had joined in this kind of Bay Area rite of passage where high school students walk out on an issue that's important to them. So there was kind of a rising awareness of what was happening in the world and this sense that this country isn't what we thought, Mm -hmm. which I think was quite pervasive. Mm -hmm. And I remember that also, Dashka, being part of my curriculum growing up, questioning history, questioning how we perceive the world as it is. That was part of my Albany experience, which is why this is so interesting. And I think it's also here important to bring up there's another important backdrop to this incident, which is kids are interacting in online spaces in ways that I didn't. What is the deal there? Tell me a little bit more about that for our listeners. Well, I'm really glad that you brought that up as the second piece of backdrop because the adults were pretty much living in the real world, but the kids are living half their lives online in an entirely different world. And in 2017 was kind of the peak edgelord time when there was a lot of edgy memes which is to say extremely offensive memes that are designed to be transgressive and to be funny because they're offensive. And so they're racist, they're sexist, they are anti-Semitic, they're homophobic, transphobic, ableist, you know, you name it. They make jokes about rape and pedophilia, anything that you can think of that would seem inappropriate for humor These memes are about that. And there were YouTubers who were also kind of inhabiting this space. And I want to say it's not over. Like that still happens. But this was the moment when it was really coming to the surface and was very au courant among a lot of boys, in particular white and Asian boys. Did you have to dive deep into some black hole of the internet to find these memes? Or Was that humor prevalent in even sort of mainstream online spaces? Well, it was a little bit of both. And so this kind of humor was very mainstream in the high school, just not to the extent that it was taken on this racist Instagram account. And so you didn't have to go very far to find kind of the light version Mm. of it. There's been a lot of good research that's been done recently about what happens when you interact with this kind of content on various platforms. TikTok is an amazing and disturbing example Mm -hmm. how quickly, like within a couple of days, if you interact with, say, transphobic content, 
you will, within a couple of days, have the full menu of white supremacist, anti-Semitic, pro-insurrection, anti-vaccine. So the Instagram account's creator was a Korean-American boy. You named him Charles in your book. That's a pseudonym. Charles targets Black students and other students with racist memes and posts, including people that were in his own social circle. What did Charles share with you about what that humor meant to him and what he thought he was doing by posting it? I mean, it seems so obviously wrong and racist, but how did he explain it to you? Yeah. And we had a lot of conversations about that exact thing because it was puzzling to me. And he would say, like, it's obviously racist. I'm not in denial about the fact that these memes are racist. But in the context of the moment, what he thought was that he was sharing them with a small group of people who everybody knew that they weren't really racist And it was getting laughs. And so, like, let's not think about it too deeply. Mm. In the book, I call it the zone of both because it was the space that this group of boys lived in quite frequently. And I think it's uh, pretty familiar when I talk to other people who identify as male. They are very familiar with this kind of place where you're joking, but it's not really clear how much you're joking. Maybe you're saying something real, but maybe you're not. And anyway, you're not going to investigate it because if you get serious, then you're not really in the club anymore. Mm. And then because there's so much roasting and joking and put downs and sort of upping the ante around different ways to put each other down, Mm -hmm. it feels very risky to say, oh, I think that crossed the line. When you hear Charles's explanation for these very racist social media posts, Were you surprised by it? I was really surprised the first time he told me. Always when I'm doing these interviews, I'm trying to find out what the story is from the perspective of the person who's living it. You know, how do they tell the story? And I was really surprised by this, that the story was, I didn't feel myself to be racist. I thought I was just doing something funny with my friends. I have since discovered that this is really common, that this sort of bright line that I think most adults are aware of, of like, you know, lynching is pretty far over that line. There was nothing on this account that wasn't pretty far over the line. One of the girls said, you know, they didn't just cross the line. They like they ran several blocks over the line. To the boys in this kind of context, this humorous context, that wasn't as clear to them. And I think part of that is lack of introspection and also lack of empathy because they really weren't thinking, these girls are my friends, how would they feel Mm -hmm. if they saw these posts? They were really not imagining that at all. Albany High School administrators attempted to mediate a discussion between the Instagram account's followers and the students targeted by its racist memes. Author Dashka Slater shares how that situation devolved into chaos and divided the town after a quick break. You're listening to Fifth Admission. You can support the newsroom that creates this podcast by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. 
Ready for a spring break to remember? Amtrak's got just a ticket for you and your crew. With share fares, you and your friends can save up to 60%. The more who travel, the more you save. Skip the hassle of driving through the Northeast while exploring D.C., Philly, New York, and Boston. No middle seats and plenty of legroom are just an Amtrak away. And with stops right in the heart of your favorite cities, you'll arrive downtown, not out of town. Savings start with three travelers. Eight travelers required for 60% discount. Visit Amtrak.com slash sharefares to book. Restrictions may apply. In my conversation about the racist Instagram account with my high school BFF, Candice, we talked at length about how grateful we were that we hadn't grown up with social media. Earlier, Candice shared that she felt for the Black girl who's targeted by the posts that she could see herself in her. So I asked her what she felt about the Asian boy who created the account, a boy the author Dashka Slater names Charles in her book, Accountable. How much sort of compassion did you feel for the other side of the story, for Charles? I felt compassion for him because he's a kid at the end of the day, and kids make mistakes, and high school is a scary place to navigate. And his mistakes were aired out for the world to see, and that's that's tough, especially with the social media age. People like to view kids as adults. Mm-hmm when they're in fact not adults. They're regular kids that make mistakes. I felt for him a little bit. Yeah. But I also don't feel that black kids in high school at age get that luxury. Mm. When we make a mistake, we're always looked at as adults. Our sorries and I didn't mean to and I'm just a kid don't ring as far. And so I would be remiss if I didn't mention that. I thought about that a lot when this story exploded. How do you hand out consequences for what a young person does online when there was so much real-life harm? I asked author Dashka Slater about that. She had spent years following the fallout, trying to understand what the main target of the account had to deal with. So, Dashka, I want to talk about the harm that this whole account cause for many people at the school and especially the main target of the account, one of the main targets, a black girl named Andrea. Her picture was posted on the account. She had to reckon with that and with all her friends. And you said in your reporting that of all her friends, she was the only one that wasn't surprised. And she thought to herself, I should have listened to my mom. I should have done something to prevent this. What did that mean? Well, she had had a couple of encounters with Charles in particular and with this group of boys. The first one was when she had been in a math class and one of the boys came over and put his hands in her hair and Charles was filming it Mm -hmm. on his phone and then posted it with the caption, touching the nap. Mm. And she heard about this from a friend of hers and went to Charles and said, take that down. And he did not respond with, oh, okay, but pushed back and they had a whole back and forth that was later posted on this secret Instagram account. So she had been made to feel very self-conscious from that original interaction and had begun wearing her hair up in a bun and, you know, had this feeling of being watched and being filmed, which turned out to be accurate. 
But she hadn't wanted to make a big deal about it. Mm -hmm. And so when she was showing signs of not wanting to go to school, of being depressed, and her mother knew that this had happened, her mother spoke to a vice principal who called her in and said, can we talk about this? And Andrea said, you know, here's what happened, but let me just deal with it myself. Mm. And so that was what she was thinking about, was that she had thought that she had made it clear over a couple of interactions, leave me alone, don't post about me, don't talk to me, we're not cool. And in fact, clearly, if anything, that made there be more animus towards her. Right. What do you think that maybe reveals about what it's like being a Black student in Albany, feeling like, I got to deal with this on my own because maybe I don't want to ruffle more feathers. All the girls that I spoke to in some way had to grapple with this question of when do I speak up and when do I let stuff go by? Mm. Part of what's feeding that is the fear of being the angry black girl and also the fear of being seen as trouble or not fun to be around. You know, they didn't want to be excluded. They didn't want to be typecast or stereotyped. And also, they're teenagers. And so they just want to get along and have friends and be popular and all those things. So all of that, like the particular pressures of being Black in a mostly white and Asian context, plus all the regular pressures of being a teenager and being a teenage girl and having lots of cultural messages about being nice. And when this starts unraveling, the parent community steps in. And I know the Albany parent community is very engaged. Everyone sort of grows up with each other. They know each other's families. So for a lot of Black and Latino families, this was an opportunity suddenly to air out how they feel about the town. And we saw that in a very contentious and heated school board meeting that took place right after the account was discovered. Dozens of people making their voices heard at a packed school board meeting tonight. If they made a meme and if they posted it, out of here. She and other parents packed tonight's school board meeting because they want to make it clear there should be zero tolerance for racism at Albany schools. Yeah, there were actually many of these meetings They just kept happening and they kept on going on for hours and people would come with these stories of their own childhood, their children or grandchildren, their experience as a person of color, maybe not in Albany, but someplace else that they grew up, but they could really relate to the experiences of current students in Albany, their experiences also of being bullied. So This incident kind of brought out this huge upwelling of grief and anger, some of which was attached to this particular incident, and some of it was more generalized. So I want to talk about how this incident suddenly went south pretty quickly. The main culprits, including Charles, they don't return to the school. There are some consequences for the kids who interacted with the account in some way, follow, liked, commented on the posts. They received five-day suspensions, the maximum allowed by the state. And Albany High administrators decided to hold a mediation session on the day that these particular students returned. At the same time, protests, sit-ins were planned for that same day. What was that scene like? And how did this sort of become 
the the boiling point? It was, in retrospect, probably the worst idea ever to have this already very fraught mediation within literal yards of where there was a sit-in and protest by the student body. So the mediation idea stemmed from a valid concern, which was these kids are going to have to go back to school in the same school with the students who have been targeted. Let's see if we can get them to work it out right here, and then everybody can go back to class and everything will be fine. It did not go well for many reasons. It was poorly facilitated. The kids were not prepared. Some of the boys came in with apology letters. Some came in kind of thinking, I'm just going to get through this and then I can go to class. But they all had this idea that they would explain what their particular level of involvement was because the creators of the account and the kind of main instigators were not there. Mm -hmm. So it was the 11 least involved students. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted to explain, like, I'm not really racist. I knew about this, but I didn't exactly condone it, or I only commented a couple times, or I never even saw the posts. And at the same time, this was still very, very fresh for the students who had been targeted. And many of them were getting their first look at who the followers actually were. Mm. And it turns out that it's somebody that they've known their whole lives. They've been to each other's homes. Their parents are friends, all these Albany connections. Right. So their sense of betrayal is extremely high and also their sense that the boys don't get it, Mm -hmm. don't get how badly they have been hurt. The girls are emotional. They want to have the boys respond in kind. The boys get overwhelmed really quickly, Mm -hmm. um, are very uncomfortable, have trouble making eye contact. So as this happens, it becomes this feedback loop where the emotions in the room just get hotter and hotter. And then just outside, there are about 250 students who are sitting in the main building of the school on the floor, some with signs, most with not with signs, there basically to say, we don't believe that these students should come back at all. Albany High School students protest the return of a handful of their peers responsible for a racist Instagram page targeting minority students. One parent in particular was against it as well. She says the offenders were back from a five-day suspension, and today's sit-in cast a spotlight on racism and intolerance on the school's campus. I don't think they can really come back here after these horrible things that they did. And eventually, the girls come out to talk to the demonstrators and decide that the boys should come out and face the music in the form of a couple hundred of their peers. I mean, that's, that's quite a scene. It's quite a scene, and it accounts vary as to how much noise there actually was. In the boys' memories, there was a lot. Mm-hmm. And some of the witnesses also say there was a fair amount of yelling. Others say it was very quiet. I would say either scenario is the stuff of teenage nightmares, whether you have 250 of your peers staring at you without speaking or whether they're yelling racist and we don't want you in our school. Both are bad. 
this backlash from the community changes the energy for some of the students who were involved in the Instagram account. They defend themselves and push back against being excommunicated from the Albany High community. This resulted in students filing lawsuits against Albany High on a variety of grounds. Local TV stations at the time covered it really closely. A violation of their First Amendment rights. That's what four student plaintiffs are calling their school suspensions. After being punished, the teen boys are also suing for emotional distress. They say the school put them in harm's way a number of times, citing a voluntary meeting where a demonstrator hit two of the disciplined students, leaving scrapes and bruises. So, Dashka, as you reported, 10 students ended up litigating. Some of the followers of the account were able to reach $80,000 settlements with the school. For Charles, the main creator of the account, he ended up litigating for years until finally the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear his last appeal earlier this year. Why did Charles stay on it for so long? What was his goal? You know, I asked him this question so many times. And I was never really able to get an answer that made sense to me Hmm. because he was not particularly invested in the free speech question. Hmm. And he had already said very clearly, I think Andrea's in the right, I'm in the wrong, she didn't do anything wrong. And yet this lawsuit just kept on going. His attorneys were very interested in kind of forging new law around this question of what is the limits of a school's disciplinary abilities when students do something online outside of school. Charles, I think, was hoping for some money Mm -hmm. because the family did not have a lot and he was pretty strapped financially. Mm -hmm. And I think he had this sense that he had been really ejected from the community. The school had shown no interest in him being okay in his well-being. There had been a welfare check on him right after this account was revealed. But after that, the school kind of moved on, and he was for a long time just without any schooling at all because there was no independent study for him. And so I think he felt like he had been hung out to dry. Yeah. And even though he accepted that he that was as a result of his own actions, it still felt wrong to him that in this community where he had been a member of this special community where the schools are everything, and then suddenly he wasn't. Dashka, you're a restorative justice advocate. And how has that lens helped you make sense of all of this and maybe just the key missteps that were made here? One of the things that I have learned as a restorative justice practitioner, I'm part of a circle in Oakland that meets every week and is made up of formerly incarcerated and system-involved people and never incarcerated, never system-involved people. And we've been meeting for about five years in various incarnations. And so I've had the opportunity to see people who have done really terrible things, Mm -hmm. grievous harm, and served many decades in prison, and who are now deeply thoughtful, responsible, kind, loving, honest people that I would trust in any situation. Mm -hmm. And so I know that transformation is possible and available to anyone, no matter what they've done. 
And so when I see this feeling, which is very common right now, that somebody who is committed certain kinds of harm, particularly harm that is gendered or racialized, that we need to cancel them forever, throw them away, shun them, make sure they never get a job, never go to school, that that's just a waste. Mm -hmm. Because everybody is capable of transformation, but young people are especially capable of transformation. But all of us have, have harmed and all of us have been harmed. And with any luck and support, we have grown to be people who do better as adults. And that understanding was really lost in Albany, and it is often lost when young people do things that get us where we live, you know, that really are, are an affront to our values. And I think that is a terrible waste. Yeah. So it's now been six years since the account was discovered. Where are the central students involved in it now? And has this incident continued to reverberate in their lives? I would say that none of the people involved on either side would say that it is all behind them. For the first time in the many years that I've been talking to them, I don't feel worried about them. You know, it was a long time of me just really not being sure that they would be okay hmm. because there was so much depression and anxiety. And then COVID happened and kind of put the brakes on anybody being able to move on, like go away, travel, go to college. Everybody was kind of sent right back to where they were in 2017, 2018, when they were stuck at home, either because they were kind of checked out of school because of having been targeted and not feeling comfortable or safe there, or they were not returning to school because they'd been kicked out or it had been made impossible for them to come back. Very few of the, of the students who followed the account ever went back to school. And so there was just a lot of lasting sense of maybe despair is, is overstating it, but depression, anxiety, and not being able to see the end of it, yeah. how they would get out. And that is finally starting to change. Kids are finishing school, and many of them who weren't in school are now in school, finding jobs, moving to new places where they can be farther away from this community that has been so toxic for them. And so I think in the end that they will be okay, mm -hmm. but it was a long time of not being sure. Right. You know, at the beginning of our conversation, I asked you about the question you wanted to answer by reporting this. Do you feel like you found your answer? Well, I certainly spent a long time trying to come to terms for myself about what true accountability looks like and what should have been done. And I now, because I'm out in the world talking to communities that are concerned about this happening to them, which almost inevitably it will, this question of what should have been done, how do we prevent this, those questions are now being asked of me, which I'm delighted about because that is always my goal as a reporter is to open up conversations, provoke introspection, surface kind of the hidden things. And I hope that people will come along with me on this journey and conclude, as I have concluded, that there is this infinite capacity for growth if 
the adults do their job of being teachers and coaches and helping young people learn from their mistakes and helping the victims and targets of harm to heal and be able to withstand something that they never asked for and never deserved, but with the great set of supports can survive. Yeah. Well, Dashka, I feel like I could talk to you for a long time. It's been such a riveting conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Dashka Slater is a journalist and author. She just published the book, Accountable, the True Story of a Racist Social Media Account and the Teenagers Whose Lives It Changed. Learn more about Dashka's work at dashkaslater.com or follow her on Twitter. She's at Dashka Slater. Big thank you to my friend, Candice Dawson, for being down to relive high school with me. This episode was produced by me and edited by Gary Baca with additional production support from Keith Manconi and Sarah Feldberg. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.